You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. So hear the word of the Lord. So when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, Then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. Just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and and feed you or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did for, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Stick, sick and you didn't, and in prison and you didn't take care of me. Then they too will answer the same thing. Lord, when we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you. Then he will say to them and answer them, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. So Father, um, as always, we need your help, we need your wisdom, we need your spirit um, to come and and open up the eyes of our heart, open up the ears of our heart, Lord, so that we can hear what you have for us this morning. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Yeah, I don't know if this was a common refrain for your home. It wasn't necessarily a common refrain, but it was something that was said some quite, sometimes quite often in our home, depending on um, the nature of the offense or another word for it, the nature of the disobedience, right? And that would refrain would come from my mom, and that is, you wait till your dad comes home. <laughs> so I don't know if anybody can resonate a little bit with that, you know. Um, it's not that my mom didn't discipline us, she did, but sometimes there was something in the nature of the disobedience that was just for dad to kind of take care of. And I don't know about you, those are not necessarily comforting words when you hear that. You just wait for your dad to come home. Those are, uh, it's not a joyful waiting when you're waiting there. It's, it's, a, it's a little dreadful. Um, if you're anything like me, you did things to prepare for the dad to come home. Maybe there's ways that you tried to pa- pad your pants I always tried to put books in my pants or add a few extra layers of 
toilet paper in my underwear, whatever I could do uh, to prepare for this moment when dad would show up, all right? Um, and I, I don't know um, what necessarily comes to you when you think about judgment, right? As we read a passage there, a lengthy passage of scripture that was about God's judgment upon mankind. I don't, I don't know what, what comes up in you when you hear that. Is it fear? Is it dread? Is it anxiety? Is it confusion? Um, maybe you're here and this is one of the reasons why you've kind of changed your beliefs. Uh, it's because you can't really reconcile this idea of judgment in your own heart. So my, my desire today um, is to invite you to kind of have an open posture, right? No matter what, I think it's good for us to pay attention to what rises up in us when we read a passage like this or anytime we read the Bible. I think there's a place for our emotions here when we read the text. It kind of tells us some things that are probably going on in us. And so I'm just asking God to, to give us kind of an open posture, no matter how you come in or no matter how you feel when you hear this passage of scripture, because this is um, the last of the last of Jesus' teachings. And so if you've been with us for a while as we've worked through this book, Matthew has organized his gospel around these five different blocks of teachings. The first one came in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the very last one that started back in chapter 25. And, and this little section that we just read is the last of the last of Jesus' teachings. So obviously this is this is pretty important. This is the last thing he kind of leaves with his disciples before he dies. And so obviously this is, has some significance in Jesus' life and teachings, and I, and I want it to have the same for us. And so what I've, I've been praying for my own life, and as I've approached this Sunday, as I've marinated in this text over the course of this week, I, I pray that we would hear the warning that's here. There is a warning that Jesus is giving to us, and I pray that all of us in this room would hear this warning and listen and heed. I pray also that, and this may sound a little strange right now, but I think you'll see this at, at the end, that some of us in this room, I pray you'll be comforted, that you'll be encouraged, that there is an, an end that is coming, and no matter how small the act of kindness and mercy and compassion that you show to someone, it is seen and it will be rewarded. And the last thing I've just been praying is that we would um, have a, a, a proper sense of urgency sort of restored back in us. Not in this, I don't know, I think there's an unhealthy urgency that we can have that's not helpful. Um, but I do think there's a, a proper sense of urgency where there's a, there's a burden that we kind of feel as a result of what we worked through this morning. And I think that's a, a good burden for us. I mean, there's, there's some unhealthy burdens, you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus says his burden is light. He doesn't say he removes the burden completely. It's, it's light. So there's, there's a burden that I think we need to feel and experience this morning from this passage. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to pull out kind of three uh, observations or truths or whatever you want to call those that I think are rooted in the text here. And, and hopefully uh, we can land the plane with some of these things that I desire and been praying for us this morning. The first observation that I, that I see in this text is, um, 
is that this is real. That what Jesus is describing for us is reality. I mean, hear what he says here, starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in, in his glory, and Son of Man is the kind of favorite uh, term that he describes himself that's coming out of, the, out of the book of Daniel. and He's referring to himself here, the Son of Man, Jesus. When he comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he, Jesus, will sit on his glorious throne in all the nations. And this means everyone. That's what he's talking about, all peoples. Put this in the plural, that has ever lived. All peoples will be gathered before who? Before Jesus. And he will separate them, one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. This is not an illustrative story here. I know, depending on the translation that you're reading here, some of you might have like above this little section in italics, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and those little subheadings or titles are not inspired. They weren't in the original language. They're, they're kind of put in there to kind of help us make sense of movements and paragraphs and stuff. And, and I just put before you that this is this is not a parable. It's, a, it's actually a, a very bad description of this. this. Even though the stories before this were parables, you know, these, these made-up stories that Jesus gave to us, these three before uh, this section were, were given to us to help us know what it looks like to be ready, to be prepared for his second coming. These were made-up stories that, and before there to kind of teach a point, to, to help us see visually and picture what it looks like to be ready. But but here is a, is a shift. This is not a made-up story. Yes, he, he speaks of sheep and goats, and he uses this in metaphorical language of something they understood. Like this, is, this happened for them. They saw this all the time. The, the sheep and goats would, would graze together in the same field, and then at the end of the night, they would separate them. And so they visually had a picture of what he's talking about here. And so that's the, the only metaphor. The rest of this is, is history, like this is future history. This is a, a vision of what we're headed toward. Jesus is talking very clearly here. He's, he's speaking in plain language. He's not trying to use some hyperbole or trying to, you know, use some similes here to where he's trying to keep us confused. No, Jesus is showing us that, that history, the, the course of time ends with judgment and Jesus is the judge and all nations, all people will gather before him and he will judge them. Now I know, just like a, I said at the beginning, kind of setting this up, I know this, this idea of judgment for some of us kind of lands really weird. We, we, we sort of have some problems reconciling this God who judges us. This, uh, it, just, it just sometimes just doesn't leave us um, uh, I don't know, feeling good's not a great word to put it there, but it just leaves us sometimes confused. And if, and if you've got, you know, yourself settled with this idea of judgment, I, I guarantee you, you've got friends and families and coworkers who in some ways have said no to Christianity or no to God because you just can't picture a God who would send people to hell. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, uh, talking about this idea uh, says this, and he's, the first part is quoting from a book by Robert Bella called The Habits of the Heart. I think there's a slide here, but he says this, most Americans would agree with this statement. An individual should arrive at his or her own religious beliefs independent of any church or synagogue. And he goes on to conclude that most fundamental belief in American culture is that moral truth is relative to individual consciousness. Our culture, therefore, has no problem with a God of love 
who supports us no matter how we live. It does, however, object strongly to the idea of a God who punishes people for their sincerely held beliefs, even if they are mistaken. I can't unpack all that's in this quote. There's a lot here, and if you've not read his book, The Reason for God, I encourage you to pick it up. It's, it's a really helpful read, and, and there is a specific chapter about this idea of hell and God sending people to hell. But, but what I want to pull out of this quote is this idea that we, everyone in this room, and most people that you come in contact with, that you dialogue with, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, has no trouble with an idea that God is a God of love. They have no trouble with that. And I just want to put before you, like, why? Where do we get that belief? What source do we, do we ground this idea that God is a God of love? I mean, if you would just, as best we can, try to observe this world and just this world alone and the history of this world, no other sources, I think it would be really hard to conclude that God is a God of love. For some of us, you can look at your own life. And if you just looked at your experiences in life alone, that's it, nothing else. Some of you in this room, would, it would be really hard for you to draw the conclusion that God is a God of love. So it's a, it's a truth that culture at large would accept, but I but before you, where, where do we get this idea? I would say the only place that we can go to know that God is a God of love, the only source that we have is not, our, not looking into the world, not even looking at our life experiences, but the Bible. I know that sounds kind of trite and, and simplistic, but it's, it's the truth. It's the only place, the only source that we can go to that definitively helps us see that God is a God of love. We can go to an historical event that happened in real history, the death of his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who's taken on the judgment of evil and wickedness and your own sin on his own behalf. He's absorbing his own wrath toward that. And the only place that we can go to and not see this as some crazy, heinous, Act. The only place that we can go to and discover that this is a, an act of love for the world is the Bible itself. One of the most famous passages of Scripture that most of us in this room know. That is John 3.16. For God so loved the world. How do we know that? How do we know he loves the world? How do we know his posture toward the world is love? For he sent his only son. That's the only source, people. The Bible is the only source that we have that we can definitively say that God is a God of love. And then therefore at the same time, if the only source that we have is that God is a God of love is the Bible, that same Bible says that God is also judge. He's not only a God of love, but he is a God who will judge. And even these warnings of his judgment, it's not given in a posture where God glories in punishing sinners, right? No, it's given in a posture of, of love. I'm, I'm telling you of the coming judgment so that you 
We'll be ready. It's what we, what we say every time we gather together when I read the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. And what? What's the posture? It's given to you in love. Even hard texts like this. Yes, the Bible tells us that God is a God of love. Yes, the Bible tells us that the, the source where we get this truth and we see here that he's also a God of judgment, that there's coming a day where he will put all things in the world to its right and justified end. So the first observation, guys, I just... Putting this before you, like this is real. This will happen. Every single one of us in this room will stand before Jesus and be judged. This is going to happen. The second observation we see here is not only is this real, but there's a separation. And you notice it. Is a separation into two groups. So, so, so Jesus is dividing the entire world into two groups, which is consistent to what we've seen over you know, the end of chapter 24 all through chapter 25. We saw it in the days of Noah. There were two groups, the prepared and the unprepared, the faithful servant and the wicked servant. There was the foolish bridesmaids and the wise bridesmaids. There was the faithful steward and the unfaithful steward. So there's, there's two groups that are being divided here, the sheep and the goats. And if you notice, their separation is determined by what they do. Can we just sit with that for a second? That's surprising to me. I mean, if I'm, if I'm writing this, this is what I want to read, that the separation happens because you, this group, accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, and you did not. This group, you know, came forward and prayed the sinner's prayer, and this group did not. That's not what we see in the text here. Look, look again. Look at verse 34. I, I skipped a slide on you, Trevor. Sorry, buddy. But verse 34, look what it says there. Then the king will say to those on his right, right, come, you are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? What's the reason for this? Verse 35, four. Here's why. I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. So the separation here of these two groups is determined by how they treated those in need. I was hungry. You fed. Thirsty. You gave. Stranger. Invited in. Clothes. You clothed me. Sick. You took care. Prison. You visit me. The separation here is determined by what you do. This is true of those who are blessed and true of those who are cursed. The separation is by their, their act of love and mercy, not just their good intentions, but by their physical acts of showing compassion for those who are suffering in need. These are not flashy, big, huge, miraculous things that are happening here. These are little bitty ministries. Small, insignificant, unnoticed works of mercy and love. That's how the separation happens. The separation happens by what they do. You did this. And then he looks at those that are cursed and said, you did not do this. And so it, 
if you're reading this, hopefully, you know, it's, it's raising some concerns and at least it's raising some questions like, are you telling me that, that we're going to be judged by our works? That we're going to get in based upon what good I did or did not do? Is that, is that what Matthew's teaching here? Is this what Jesus is helping us see? I mean, what about all the letters that we read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it tells us we're saved by grace alone and you know, not according to our works. Where's this idea of being justified by faith alone and, and not by our works? And then I, then I get this picture, this, remember Lyle said it was real and it is real of, of the future where they're gonna be judged and separating them sheep and goats. He's looking at the ones that are blessed and said, this is why you're blessed because you did. This is why you're cursed because you did not. So you're telling me, Lyle, if I'm merciful, kind, show compassion without any regard to Jesus, I get in? I mean, another, even another question you can ask this is like, can't those who don't even give a rip about Jesus, who don't worship Jesus, who wouldn't call themselves a Christ follower, would call themselves probably agnostic or an atheist or whatever, can't they do the same things? And haven't we seen that even over the course of this year in the midst of a pandemic? I would say yes, they can. And I would put before you that the reason why they can is because it's the common grace of God upon all of humanity. And not only is it that, it's, it's evidence and proof that all of humanity is made in the very image of God, even though that image is distorted and broken and messed up. It shows that there is still something small, little of, of the image of God in every single human being. So then, therefore, Lao, what is the difference if, if both Christian and non-Christians can do this, and it seems like we're doing, you know, getting judged based on our works, what is, what is the difference? And here's the difference I would say to you. Christianity does not bring a new ethic. It gives a new heart. It brings a new motivation. It brings a new enabling. It brings a new understanding of even the extent to which love is willing to go. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, that's why the Christian is in different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one or if they think there's not, at least they, they hope to deserve approval from good people. But the Christian thinks any good he or she does comes from the Christ life inside of them. Did you hear that? This is the difference. A follower of Christ thinks any good he or she does comes from the Christ life inside of them. He or she does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. Just as the roof of a greenhouse does not attract the sun because it is bright, but becomes bright because the sun shines on it. The source of our actions as followers of Jesus Christ is not from ourselves, but it's from the Christ life that dwells in us. And so you even see this in this judgment that Jesus does here because those that are blessed, what were they? They were surprised. They were shocked. They said, when did we see you? 
It's almost like this was second nature to them. It was almost like it was out of this, this renewed heart, this new being that they, they acted this way. It was like a no-brainer for them to, to, to see someone who was hungry and feed them, who was naked and clothe them, who was sick and visible. Like, like of course we're going to do this. And I would put before you that this is an evidence of a, a redeemed life. It's the, the evidence of, a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of someone who is a, a child of God. It's the, the, t- the tangible visibleness that something has happened on the inside of them so that they become the kind of person who, who acts justly and with kindness and mercy and compassion to where when they see someone in need, it's like second nature. They just, it's a reactive response. And you even see it, hints of this in this passage when he says this, come you who are blessed by my Father. Well, blessed is grace. It's favor. Take your what? What does it say there? Your in Inheritance, and the last time I checked, an inheritance is not something you can earn, right? An inheritance is given to you freely because you're a part of the very family. In the same way here, guys, you are a part of the family of God, not by something you did to earn it. No, it's given to you by the grace that is seen in and through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is getting after in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, when he says this, in love. Love this. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons. Through what? Good works? Showing love and mercy? Being kind? No. Through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. The idea that you and I can earn our salvation for the good deeds that we've done is not only foreign to Matthew, but it's foreign to the entire Bible. But at the same time, it's the same time, you got to hear this. If I have a relationship with Jesus, if I'm adopted into the family of God, then I'm going to begin to look like the family. And this is exactly what Matthew has been telling us over and over and over in his gospel. The key word that he uses is righteousness. And righteousness is not just seen in our in the, in the kind of like, uh, you know, sort of quote-unquote the holy living, you know, fasting and going to church and memorizing my Bible and having the big square on my head and walk. Not when we do that, but back in that day, they do. Remember the, I can't remember the names of it right now. Start with the PH. But you know what I'm talking about. That, that's not what he's trying to show us. This righteousness that Matthew is talking about over and over is seen. It's visible in love and mercy to those who are in need. Because there's no place for someone to call themselves a Christian and be absolutely indifferent to human suffering and need. Judgment is determined by your acts of mercy because it reveals what kind of person you are. And if you want to change the kind of person you are, you have to receive Christ. So there is a separation, and that separation is based upon what you do, but that doing is in response to Jesus. Those good works are the visible outworking of being in relationship with Jesus who changes us on the inside so that we become the kind of person who is loving, merciful, and compassionate. In Jesus' words, we're loving our neighbors. So this is real. It's not some made-up story. 
There is a separation. And lastly, and I think this is where Jesus is trying to land all of these parables and this truth that he's saying here. We examine our lives. We examine our lives. So if judgment is real, and judgment, there's a, there's a separation that happens for all of humanity, then the, the landing here for all of us is that we examine. We stop. We look in our lives. And we ask questions like this. Am I ready? Are you ready? I mean, this is where it's going. I mean, Jesus said it toward the end of chapter 24. If you knew a thief was going to break into your house tonight, what would you do? That's not a trick question, was it? You'd go get ready. You'd unlock the safe, get the gun out, you know? Or maybe you have guns that are built into your body, right, on your arms. You got your guns, right? You're ready to go. I don't know. But you're going to be ready. Remember this warning of judgment is so that you would reflect and think, am I ready to stand before Jesus? Am I this kind of person? When someone who experiences me describe me as a person who is kind, who is merciful, compassionate, have I aligned myself with the coming reality of the universe? Whose side am I really on? The reality of judgment coming requires us to examine our own lives. C.S. Lewis says this, and you know, this is two quotes from Mere Christianity. It's, it is a great little book. If you've never read that, I would encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's very helpful. I read it several years ago, and God used it in a powerful way in my life. But he says this, kind of thinking about this idea of examination in our own lives. He says this, I wonder where the people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. When that happens... It's the end of the world. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. And God is going to evade, all right. But what is good of saying you are on this side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have a choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That's it with you for a minute. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. 
That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. Every single one of us in this room will see Jesus face to face. You'll either see him as your friend, your brother, your savior, your redeemer, your king, or your judge. Which do you want? Who do you want to meet? This is real. There's a separation. Examine your life. So if you're not a Christian here, or if you're tuning in online, here's the good news. There's still time. Amen. If you made it through another week, here you are on Sunday. You're healthy, you're here, you're present. And God has graciously brought you here to hear this word that's given to you in love. Own your sin. Repent of your sin. Receive this perfect life that Jesus lived on your behalf. He did this for you. Receive the death that he died in your place. He took on the wrath, the judgment of your sin on himself so that you can escape this. Receive him into your life, get a new heart, get a new want, get new desires, and begin to live this kind of life. I also realize there's many of us here that are, that are Christians, and you would call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes when you read passages of judgment, depending on kind of temperamental wiring, um, it just creates a lot of guilt and shame and um, maybe the refrain, like I said last week, gets in your head and you say, I'm just never doing enough, never doing enough. And, and you just feel kind of like this sort of dread and fear of the coming back of Jesus that I'm not going to measure up. Well, I just want to say that judgment is here for your encouragement, not your dread. I mean, just read the parables that we just got done unpacking last week. All those parables, the ones that were prepared, if you're in Christ, you are ready and prepared. All of them celebrated when the master came back. They were thrilled. And so it is for you. Guys, look, your sins have been paid in full. And if you'll notice, when he talks to the ones that are blessed, he doesn't mention anything about their sins. He just rewards them for all the acts that they did here. Why? Why did he not mention anything about their sins? Was it because they were sinless once they received Christ and the rest of their life they were sinless? No, but because their sins were fully forgiven through Jesus. That there's no need to recount them. And so I, I don't know what tradition you grew up in, and I thank God for the church that I grew up in, but I remember sitting in sermons where a preacher would say they wouldn't use the screen because back in those days we didn't have a screen, right, unless it was like a flannel board or whatever. But they would say, hey, you know, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a big TV that comes out there, and, and you're going to be judged, and he's going to show you all these things where you missed it, blew it, didn't do it, didn't measure up. And, and I just always... Like when I was young, I mean, it created a ton of fear in me. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't, 
I don't want that. And, I, and the, as I've gotten older and I reflect upon that, it's like so not true. Like what, what healthy earthly father ever takes their children and say, hey, I want to sit down with you and I want to review the last week and show you how you blew it. Like, I don't know if that's really a healthy fathering, right? If I'm writing a book, I don't think it is. I think it's really unhealthy. Especially if the gospel is true and the gospel is true and it says that all of your sins, clean, forgiven, past, present, and future. So he's not standing up there saying, you blew, you blew it here. You remember that? Right, remember that? I want you to feel a little more shame about that. No, no. It's a celebration. It's a time for him to reward you for the work that you did on this earth. So judgment is not here for something to, you to dread. It's, it's to help you not to grow weary in doing good, as Paul said. Because even the smallest act of mercy and kindness that usually goes unnoticed, right, is seen by Jesus, and you will be rewarded for it. Judgment as a follower of Christ is not something we need to dread. It's actually something there to encourage us so that we won't grow weary in doing good. And lastly, and I'll end with this, just trying to kind of think through layers of how we apply what we've learned here. And, I, and this is the last one. I, I, I pray that what we looked at today as well as what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, that this understanding of judgment cultivates a renewed sense of urgency in all of us. Because it isn't just about you being ready. It's about you also helping those who God's put in your life be ready. You have friends, you have family, you have middle school and high school friends who need Jesus. This is, this is where we're headed. And without Christ, they will, they will suffer punishment for their rebellion, their sin, their their unwillingness to bow and allegiance to, to worship Jesus. And, and I know I'm not, like, this is where I'm trying to say, like, I, I'm kind of giving you a burden, but I don't want this burden to feel like a massive weight on you. But I'm just saying, like, look, may we live out who we already are and all of us are already witnesses. This is who you are. And he's put relationships and friends and people in your life for this purpose. And may all of us, including me, at minimal, may it bother us. May we repent of our apathy here, our lack of love here. May rightfully burden us for those who do not know Christ. And he's put you in their life to help them see. Like we exist as a church, and the church, you know this, is not this building, it's you. We exist as a church to reach people with the gospel. And may the, the reality, the realness of judgment burden us and bother us and begin to pray for friends, family, coworkers, people in high school and middle school that are your friends, that they 
would know Christ and that God would use you in some way to help them see. This is real. There will be a separation. May we examine. Let's pray. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.